0: It seems like only 10 minutes ago that we were sat here on this podcast previewing 2022 MotoGP pre-season testing and now it's over already five days of work in Malaysia and Indonesia and the MotoGP teams are now heading straight to Qatar for first practice for the season opener in well, about uh, two and a half weeks by the time you listen to this. Um, I'm Matt Beer, uh, stand-in host once again. I think I'm going to stick with the Lorenzo Savadori comparison as I continue to kick around. And he's got a better gig for this year as well now, so I feel like that is, that is justified. Um, joining me from an airport hotel in Ireland is Simon Patterson.
1: Yeah. Uh, um,
0: I, I think my body hasn't caught up with the jet lag I'm suffering from yet. It's coming. You look fantastically sharp for someone who has just landed off a different time zone after two weeks of incessant work.
1: Um, I'm feeling surprisingly sharp, but I I think, yeah, like I say, I feel like, you know, whenever you wake up in the morning after a big night out and you're not hungover yet, but you know what's (laughs) going to come.
0: It feels a bit like that right now. And uh, Val Haranchi, you're at the other end of the spectrum because you're in neck-based agony.
2: Yeah, it's horrific pain. It's like it's been hit by a thousand mandalika pebbles. Does not feel great, <laughs> but also I've taken I've taken serious objection to you suggesting at the very start of this recording that it feels like ten minutes ago that preseason testing started. <laughs> it absolutely does not feel that way would, to, to me or Simon. Yeah, we are both we are both basically already begging for the season to be over. I think. Yeah,
1: since since that comment was made, I think I've traveled about twenty five thousand miles. Good effort. <laughs> uh. So.
2: Some of it on a rickety bike on roads there. Yeah,
0: look... that was the best part of it. Well, let's get straight into the, the the interesting things that Mandalika had in store for the MotoGP field. Now, this time last week, we suggested that it might not be the most representative test. It was a new circuit. We thought the conditions might be... Well, it's the weather forecast was the main thing we were worried about this time last week. Uh, Simon, it turned out there were, there were actually much bigger problems at the circuit for the, for the field to have to grapple with and get bruised by as well.
1: Yeah, so we, we kind of, the weather forecast was hit or miss going into the weekend and it turned out to be actually quite good. That was the least of our concerns in the end. Um, the heaviest rain we had was about 15 minutes after the checkered flag on the final day, which was perfect timing really. So, you know, thanks Mandalika weather gods. Um, we expected the track to be dirty. We know there's still a lot of construction going on around it and, and like there really is, like there's no grandstands yet, but there will be by the time there's a race uh, there's a dirt track leading into the circuit that will be a four lane uh, brand new road by the time we get to our race. So there's there's a lot of work going on, but dirty tracks are something you can cope with. The real problem was what turns out now to be a, a fundamental flaw with the track surface. Um, Essentially, the, the comments we heard in the first day were very, very familiar to me as someone who grew up with road racing. Because that's the sort of complaints that the writers were having. They were coming in after the sessions covered in bruises, cracked screens, a cracked visor for Marco Bazzacchi, which is a terrifying thing to think about. Um, I did a lot of digging over the course of three days. And it seems like they were told what material needed to be put into the mix that makes up the asphalt that made the circuit. They didn't. Do as they were told and instead of using a, a sort of a, a granite based uh, aggregate gravel they used a limestone based one and it was just not sticking to the binding material to the, the bitumen so whenever a bike passed over it it started pulling out these stones and firing them at 300 kilometers an hour whoever happened to be behind you um, which if you've seen some of the pictures on social media Riders are left looking basically like they've been shot at. Um, Massive bruises all over the arms, all over the throat and chest, which is not something I want to... Yeah, you don't want that. Um, And obviously that was only with testing, where everyone's on, you know, trying to run lap times on their own. For a race, it could have been absolutely chaotic if we'd been running on that. So, yeah, um, not an ideal circumstance. And it it kind of, uh, I guess skewed all of the testing because it changed everyone's testing programs we saw half of the first day basically abandoned we saw people who were planning to do race simulations with their teammates to get an idea what it was like running with another bike have to change their plans we saw people who weren't happy to ride setting out some of the tests so it it wasn't ideal but i guess it's better discovering it now than discovering it on a race weekend right
0: And this problem hadn't cropped up during the World Superbike Weekend at the circuit last year? Uh, So it turned out that it had, but we hadn't heard about it. Um, It had been
1: an issue at World Superbikes. There had been conversations in private with Dorna back then, uh, but obviously I wasn't on site. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I posted a... A quite detailed story uh earlier this week about the problems haven't got to the bottom of it all and i got a reply on twitter from Chaz davies to say "Yeah, we knew about this back then and and we were hoping it was going to be fixed for you guys and it wasn't so it's it's not come as a surprise to anyone um which is
0: rather unfortunate so even though that skewed things it still felt by the end of the weekend like we had managed to have some representative running and enough to give us a, a sense of the themes that are developing going into the first race. And the biggest one is is quite how grumpy our world champion is. So Val, tell us about Fabio Quartararo's level of annoyance and where it's come from, and and what you think his his goal with it might be.
2: Yeah, so the the freakish thing is if you look at the at the what what is the most notable thing, which I guess isn't the single lap lap time although he's only what 14 thousands of the pace in the overall test rankings but i think the big thing is the pace and the pace on a long run that he described as being crap not very good you look at it and it's it's like it's the best on the grid or at least up there he's definitely the bike he has is definitely still quick enough to win a theoretical race in which everybody uh starts from the same place and runs side by side never interacting with one another but of course, that's, that's not how MotoGP races are, and I think there's a significant substantial fear uh, for Fabio that he won't be qualifying high enough to avoid being swamped by the Ducatis early on and then will be unable, whatever his pace is, he will be unable to make up the difference uh, with overtaking. Even though he managed to do it last year, but this year, uh, there's more Ducatis and there has been no change in balance in terms of straight line speeds like the Yamaha has looked really, really rubbish on straight line speeds, both in in Sepang and in and in Mandalika. And from what Fabio is saying, there's no real expectations that that's gonna that's gonna change. Now, what that has created is the fact that Quartararo, who was already surprisingly open right in the aftermath of his F one oh, of his F one title, of his MotoGP title, in saying that he will be listening to all offers, which means non-Yamaha offers too, which is, you know, quite something to say after you've won the world championship, but he's, you know, he's reiterated that a whole bunch of times and even seemed to tie tie it in with the fact that the bike that he, that he got for, for the start of 2022 isn't the bike that he was expecting, Um, whether that's, I mean, I think we were under maybe some impression that it was a negotiating tactic at the end of last year, but I don't know, it doesn't. Doesn't sound that way right now because it's you know it's backed up by what we are seeing out on track and in terms of in terms of the lap times and the results and that, that lack of top speed and the fact that none of the other Yamahas seem to be joining Fabio when it comes to outright pace, which was already the situation at the end of last year and left him quite vulnerable to being grouped up on by by Ducatis. Plus you have the Suzuki that, despite also being an inline four, has actually found a fair bit of, of, of straight line speed without compromising without compromising its turning by the looks of it. So I don't know. I mean we immediately thought when when we heard those comments and we started, you know, trying to put two and two together, our immediate thinking is that Honda must be in play. Because that's really the only manufacturer that really makes any sense if if we were to imagine that Fabio is gonna walk away from Yamaha. Uh, because Ducati has been pretty open in saying that it's not going to look outside its rider pool, and it it does not need to. There is absolutely no reason to look outside Jorge Martín, Nenea Bastianini, Jack Miller. You're set. You don't need to pay up to get anyone else. Um, Suzuki, it looks in better shape now than Yamaha, but it's not monetarily it's gonna be worse and package wise I'm not sure it's gonna really give Fabio what he wants if, if if he's been talking about that at all. And uh, really, KTM are both unproven. So that just that just leaves the Honda as an alternative. And it's gonna be really interesting to see whether there's whether that logical logical thread is followed up by actual meaningful tangible
1: links, which I think there haven't been quite yet. The, the strange thing is that we kind of assumed uh, that it was a negotiating tactic early on um, and I think it, it probably was but it, it's kind of got to the point now where the Paddock vibe is that it is very much a negotiating tactic simply because it looks like uh, there are no options elsewhere because uh, something you know we'll come on to this in a minute but Honda have now got a second rider who finally looks very comfortable and very fast in their bike in the shape of Paul Spagaro. So, do they even want a second rider? Do they even want arrow? Is there actually a space there for him? or are they going to surprise us all and just suddenly announce that they've signed Paul for another two years alongside Mark Marquez? Um it's easy to see why arrow was so frustrated. Um it's th- there is a rumor that I have heard um that essentially the twenty twenty two engine, is the 2021 engine, that there hasn't been an upgrade because attempts failed, which is something that has happened in the past with Yamaha. We've seen them bring a new bike and then scrap it and go back to the old one. You know, they did it in, uh, I think, 2018 to 2019, I think they did something like that because the engine that they brought just didn't work. So you understand why the guy's frustrated, especially looking across the, the way to Suzuki and seeing Suzuki, who've built... Uh, An inline four that is fast in a straight line. And and that is also, I think, uh, a pretty decisive part of this whole puzzle because now suddenly Juan Mir is looking like he might stay put because he has the bike that he asked for. The the team delivered what he needed or what he wanted. And there might have been a Suzuki prospect for Quattroiro had Mir looked elsewhere, but for sure they can't afford to pay both of them. That's just not on Suzuki's books to be able to do that. It will be one or the other plus an Alex Rins or a, a similar second writer. Um it, so it it feels like uh, almost like Quatterau has played a negotiating card and it's failed on him.
2: The the thing that sort of supports my like I'm not sure it's failed and, and here's why. The thing that sort of supports my not my, but the thing that sort of, to me, supports the the idea of this being part of a negotiation is that in both speaking to you, Simon, and in speaking to MotoGP.com, Mario Marigalli, was, uh, Mario Marigalli specifically pointed to the fact that they want to retain Quartararo for two or more years. And he specifically, the or more part was present in both occasions. So if, if this is Quartararo's way of trying to uh, negotiate a bumper contract in line with what Mark Marquez got at Honda... A couple of years ago, it, that line from Yamaha would suggest that they're at the very least amenable to that. But honestly, like if this is acting from Fabio, it's it's really good acting because it, <laughs> he's not—he's clearly not thrilled with what he has right now. And in, in no. he's—if this was purely a negotiating tactic, then it's really brazen. So that's that's sort of the part that really doesn't quite gel with me because I don't think you would be that deliberately brazen with the manufacturer that just helped you to your first title. I think you'd be, but I think you would be that seemingly brazen if you were legitimately quite upset. And he he obviously does have a reason to be upset because the, he will want to add to the 2021 title, but that, you know, that early 2021 form doesn't look to be coming back because of what everyone else has done. And in late 2021, I think what he had was not enough for a full season, to to win a title or a full season.
1: I think that we almost need to split his comments into two um, and accept that, you know, I fully agree with you, he is unhappy with the bike. He is deeply unhappy with the bike. Uh, But that's almost one element of it. Then the other element is, is he unhappy enough to look elsewhere? Is he unhappy enough to take a risk? You know, it's better the devil you know, right? Is he unhappy enough to take a bet on something that could be inferior that's the that's the question we don't know the answer to and and just picking up on what you said about marigalli's comments you know maybe that is the maybe that's the hurdle right now maybe that's we're looking at the the wrong thing maybe he's not trying to negotiate a better deal for two years maybe yamaha are trying to tie him into a four-year contract or something longer term because that's Starting to become the new MotoGP norm, right? So maybe it's it's something that we're not even thinking of that he's trying to negotiate here that he's playing cards with. Um, it's it's hard to know, but it definitely sounds like we're not going to get the traditional Yamaha announcement made before the first race thing. That <laughs> ain't happening this year, that's for sure.
2: Actually, I, that is something I I definitely did not think about, and that for me the first association is more years means significantly more money and career security and all that all that jazz but I don't think Quartar really will be thinking long-term career security and not dropping out of MotoGP right now he's got a ride for as long as he'll want it for the foreseeable he's future he's got 10 years yeah yeah so the thing there with the multi-year deal is I mean you are right if, if Yamaha is insistent on over two which we, we don't know, but it's, you know, it's come up. The possibility of over two has definitely come up right now. And if that's something Yamaha is insisting on, then if you're Fabio having spent a year, uh, half a year alongside a Maverick Vinales who self-destructed after at the end of a couple of Yamaha renewals and a long stint that didn't really evolve in any meaningful way, if you're Fabio and you've looked at that, you're, you're not tying yourself up to four years, especially now that you've seen... You've seen how the bike hasn't progressed from 21 to 22. I mean, the only thing you're tying yourself up for four years is
1: if the money is amazing, or if you're Mark Marquez and you know that you can ride anything to success. And I don't think Quintero is egotistical enough to have that. You know, Mark is a once-in-a-generation talent. Let's let's know.
2: I mean, Fabio is maybe too, but there's not enough of a sample size. I to... don't.
1: I don't.
0: Yeah, we don't. Yeah. We don't know enough yet really he's been on this he's been on a rider friendly bike with which he's done amazing things and and yeah I, I, and even then it took him 3 seasons to win a championship on
1: it mark won a championship in his first season in a rider unfriendly bike true
0: with with the works team yeah
1: yeah but fa- factory honda versus underpowered yeah underpowered
2: petronas yamaha initially underpowered yeah. then of course promoted then it became a factory bike that wasn't very good. So
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. And, and I think as well, like Mark came into MotoGP with the, the confidence of being reigning Moto Two champion, with a rule change to let him straight in the factory <laughs> team. Whereas Fabio came to MotoGP as, who are you? <laughs> weren't you go- weren't you good ones? And then you know, which I guess meant he had nothing to lose, um, and it did work out pretty well. That just um, before we move on from this, from the Quattararo situation, the thing that strikes me is. His comments seem very much in the moment and not so much of a long-term plan, more reacting to the circumstances he's in right now. How far does he have to go to actually kind of burn some bridges here? I'm not suggesting to the point of Yamaha just going, all right, off you go then. But in terms of, in terms of relationships and, and that sort of thing in the garage, Val, you go first.
2: No, this is a very good point. And this is, this, is, this is what I was hinting at when I was speaking about brazenness, you know? Like, you have to be careful of that sort of thing. And you would be careful if this was a pre-planned strategy, I think. But if it's just something coming emotionally, then you don't really, you know, you don't really think about potential burn bridges or anything like that. Then again, you know, after Rossi and Vinales, I think Yamaha has a reasonably thick skin, I would imagine. And also, uh, it's just there's no obvious like you. you, you you said, you know, off you go. That definitely is not an option. There is no ready-made replacement for, for Fabio. If Fabio walks, then if I'm Yamaha, the first thing I'm doing is like taking all of that money and putting it in front of Raul Fernandez. And that's a punt. But there's there's I don't see any better solution. Maybe get Paul. If Paul, as a result of Fabio leaving, becomes a free agent, maybe that. But Yamaha, I think Yamaha right now needs... Fabio more than Fabio needs Yamaha but they probably do both need each other the way this thing is currently
1: shaking up still. Yeah I think you're completely right but I I think that um, Fabio has been quite careful that he's never named names it's always been Yamaha that haven't developed haven't worked for him he's not put it on one particular person or one particular department which might be, you know, cleverness, it might be accidental, but that probably helps. But it's also worth remembering that his previous teammate tried to blow up their bike mid-race because he wasn't happy with them. So the bar for being sacked by Yamaha is set really, really high right now. And he's he's gonna be aware of that. Yamaha is still the same
2: manufacturer that got its technical leadership to apologize to its two factory riders midway through a race weekend. So Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think he's got He's got a lot of rope before he hangs himself. Yeah,
0: fair enough. So if um, as you said, if he does exit Yamaha, as unlikely as that still seems, the the vulnerable person is is Pagaro at Honda. There's there's not an other logical place to go, and that that feels quite cruel, given that Paul had had a very good test.
2: Surely no way they'll they'll agree anything before race one, just on the evidence of the two tests, because you you have to know what you have in in he will be a cheaper version. He will be a version that's been molding and working and suffering with this bike. There is no adaptation period going forward. If Paul looks as competitive as he has in the tests, which, you know, if he's basically in the hunt for regular podiums, you don't, you don't really need Fabio just yet. The only reason you might need Fabio is that Fabio is absurdly young and you can you can aim for a dynasty of sorts with him. But, but I don't know. At the same time, MotoGP moves in very weird sometimes very fast ways and there's going to be a lot of teams and riders sitting right now in this break between mandalika and the qatar opener and you know getting restless wanting to wanting to sign something i think we're expecting one contract i'm pretty sure it, it sounds like peco and ducati are happening uh at some point before qatar but i would not be surprised if either Fabio or either Fabio started pushing on Honda and maybe if Honda got restless, I don't know. I mean, the, the sensible thing is still to wait and see what they have in this, in this new Paul who likes this bike so much more because there is, after all, a reason why they, they signed him to begin with and that's because he was is really good on the KTM and it, it seems like he can be that rider again on this new Honda.
1: There is another reason why Honda would sign uh, Fabio and that's because of Honda have him, Yamaha don't. That's the, always the flip side of of yeah. signing these contracts. You're not just taking this person; you're denying them to your opponents as well. Um, I think there is an element of there was an element of that in Honda when they signed Jorge Lorenzo, because I think that everybody knew he was never going to work on a Honda. It wasn't going to suit him. But there was rumours that he was going to Patrona Yamaha, um, and and even on a satellite bike. Lorenzo's a title th- threat, you know. He, if he'd went back to Yamaha instead of uh, going to Petronas or going to Repsol Honda, he arguably would have been the twenty twenty MotoGP world champion, even on a satellite bike. I think he, you know, with that crazy season, he he's the person that potentially could have benefited from Marquez being absent. So that was a smart move. Um, Paul. <sighs> Honda, Honda, Alberto Puj come out at the weekend and said that um, it was incredibly disrespectful to be talking about uh, contracts being signed before the season had even started, which is incredibly hypocritical from the man who sacked Alex Marquez before the season had even started uh, to sign Paul Aspegaro in the first place. Let's not forget. So I wouldn't put any any weight into that comment. I don't think that that's the reason why we've not got a signing yet but I do genuinely think that they're waiting to see how Paul does. They, they've they put a lot of money into Paul when you think about it, because they've essentially built a whole new bike and risked pissing off Mark Marquez in the process with that new bike to suit the other riders, mainly Paul Moore. So they are clearly keen to invest for the first time in maybe 10 years in riders who aren't their superstar. Um, and, Paul's language from the test was really interesting because this time last year he was going into the first race ready to win the championship. He was telling everyone he was a title contender and we were all looking at him like, Paul, are, are are we on the same planet here, mate? Like, you're not a title contender. Whereas this year, whenever you ask him, is he a title contender? After looking super strong through all the tests, he's he's very much playing it cool and, oh, we'll see what happens when we go racing and, and et cetera, et cetera. So it sounds like He's had a bit of a mentality change, but I think it's a positive one. He's got more to show than what he's shown us so far in tests. It's a very different position from where he was last year, and Honda have got to be aware of that. They've they've got to be keen to not sack the guy until until he at least gets a chance to race the bike. I think
2: the the big telling thing is probably that the you know where Paul was good in in twenty twenty one. Were the the cooler, grippier tracks, which neither Sepang nor Mandalika really, really fall under that category, and yet he he looked very good on both to the point where in Mandalika he he set the fastest time of anybody, and at Sepang he was also there or thereabout the the whole way through, um, and that's you know you can definitely take something out of that. Yeah, it's still preseason testing, and yeah, ultimately you'd you'd expect the usual suspects who. Didn't really chase lap times for the most part. You'd expect them to, to move up the order, but I mean, I don't, I don't know. I I I'm trying to think whether Paul's tone this year really struck me as different to last year. I think there's just been less wide-eyed optimism, not because, not because he's gotten smarter about it, but because. He just he was really bit last year, but he, he had reason to expect that the Honda, which many said was reasonably decent, uh, reasonably similar to the to the KTM that he made his own, he had reason to expect that it was going to work for him, and he just didn't for the most part. So I don't know. I think it's just maybe he's even being overly cautious right now in terms of in terms of how he sees it. But I think all of us are being cautious right now because we've also been here before. I fully expected Paul to win at least a race last year, and he didn't really even come particularly close. So again, I I expect him to win a race at some point this year, but I'm not going to like put it into writing only on this podcast that is available to everyone. So strange judgment call on my part, but you know, he,
1: he looks a lot more like he's going into the season being what a Honda number two rider should be, which is a solid wingman who is capable of winning races if you have a year like they had in 2020 where Mark Marquez isn't there to win a championship and dominate everything, um, and, you know he he looks now like he's on the verge of being essentially Danny Pedrosa again. And do, do they really want to sign Fabio Quadraro and send that message to Mark Marquez of, look, we know we have you in a four-year deal, but you've kind of shown a bit of weakness recently with all this injury stuff, so we're trying to replace you even though we're not? while Marquez is potentially right on the verge of coming back and being Mark Marquez again. You know, that's that's a pretty damning psychological blow to give the guy if, you know, if, if that's the case. And there is, of course, permanent rumors that Marquez has a say in who his teammate is. Does he want Cuaduaro in the same bike as him? Versus Paul, I think I know he'd rather have Paul.
2: But, you know, if if you do do it, you do it now instead of do it when Marcus's huge deal is about to expire and he's being tempted by KTM or Ducati or whatever.
0: That is true. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Danny Pedrosa. Now, when was Danny Pedrosa's last genuinely good Honda season? Because he, he tailed off late on at Repsol, didn't he?
2: 13? Like yeah. genuinely, genuinely
0: good. 13.
1: Genuinely, genuinely good was yeah. 13. So yeah. it is that. Yeah. But then he still won a race every yeah.
0: year.
2: Until... Uh,
1: until his last the year. last one, yeah.
0: But that means it's nearly ten years since Honda's produced a bike that people who aren't Marquez can ride really properly, competitively, and it really looks like they have this year. So they've got Marquez back to fitness, back to his best, and they've come up with a a, a potentially very impressive bike. How how str- Simon, how strong is Honda looking?
1: Honestly, the the bike sounds really good. It it doesn't sound like a Honda, which is pretty high praise after those ten years of of being, you know being so problematic. It actually, it sounds, I, I thought about this the other day when I was listening to the Honda guys talking about the bike and about where they've made all the changes. And the first thought that came to my mind was, man, I bet you Cal Crutchlow's pissed off. He's not getting a chance to ride this thing. <laughs> because it, it genuinely, it sounds like all of the complaints he had for his time at Honda that they didn't listen to, they're now listening to. It sounds like they've they've just, they've not changed the DNA of the bike, but they've just, Made it more manageable, a little bit more rider friendly. Just dialed the balance back a little bit, and it it sounds like a good bike. It doesn't sound like last year's bike or the year before's bike or the year before's bike that was just an animal.
0: So it was generally felt that Suzuki was looking certainly the readiest, if not maybe outright strongest on pace as such, but in the in the best overall shape at the first test. They had a, a complicated second test in some in some unexpected ways. So who'd like to tell us about everything that Mia was dealing with this weekend?
1: Yeah, I'll jump in there. Um, so just not really, not really the final test that he wanted. Um, food poisoning that meant he missed the entire last day. COVID scares that meant he had half of his garage missing on the second day. And a first day where no one rode because the track was too dirty and dangerous. Um. Yes, they went into this test sounding like the manufacturer most ready to go racing, but they left it really frustrated that they hadn't had a chance to use it properly to um to just I think polish off the final details. You know, the there's a few people made this point over the course of the the test that you can never be too ready. Uh, there's always final details to 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 finish in MotoGP, and right now because everything's so close, it's those final tenths that win or lose races Um, so yeah just not the position they wanted to be in Um, it it hopefully won't make too much of a difference to start of the season because he was still looking really really strong when he was riding um, as was the other side of the garage and it, it says quite a bit about how prepared that Alex Rins was that he felt confident enough stopping at lunchtime in the final day and saying right we're ready to race now there's no point in taking any more risk um, so yeah, I think they are still the bike that's most ready to race even with that time missing and that's that's probably a worry for the likes of Yamaha at the start of the season
2: It probably says a fair bit that despite Muir's final day absence they didn't just chuck all the items they had on Muir's list Alex Rins' way and instead just told him you're done, go, go sit in a, a bath that's a garbage can if, yeah. you, if you if you've seen that on social media but yeah um i think the place where it probably will hurt near is Manzalika. because we're we're coming back there very soon although apparently uh it just broke today it's going to be resurfaced from turn from the last turn basically to turn 5 which is one of the main problem areas but i don't so it'll it'll fix like the worst part but there's there's going to be issues yeah there's going to be, issues. Yeah, gonna be yeah. issues around the track but also it's it's gonna be a really quick work because they have to get it done basically within a month from now. No, no extra days, no anything like that. Just it has to be done in this month. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think Suzuki looks pretty good despite despite Mira's absence. Just think, you know, there's probably gonna be a Mandalika specific knock-on effect because if if most of the field has a two days head start on you, I think that's that's a hard one to make up during the actual race weekend itself. But Still, yeah, I Alex Rin sounded really happy coming out of the test. Mir didn't sound particularly bothered. Yeah, agreed. I think they're all right. Top speed looks fantastic. Yeah, top speed looks great. That's you know that's a that's a big one. Yeah, and I think there's a, a bit of sort of surprise coming out from the riders at 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 how good it's looking on the on the speed charts. They're really they're not that far off the Ducatis, and that bike, if it has top speed. That is that is a scary bike.
1: <laughs> From speaking to a few people at Suzuki, though, what they're most excited about that speed boost isn't for races; it's for qualifying. You know, qualifying has been their Achilles heel, and they think that with that extra speed, that that's you know that's the difference in in a row in the grid, basically. Maybe two.
2: Alex Rins could be a title contender with that because we know he has a little bit extra in qualifying trim compared to compared to Mir, and if he can really. Because of how close it all is, and the goddamn eight ducatis, they're going to be there every single time. If he can put those eight ducatis between himself and Mir in some sort of capacity, he can he can make some serious damage to the point standings, not to the not to his bike, for
1: once. Sorry, Alex. <laughs> it's also going to make uh, it's also going to make I think Mir uh, a better racer because it's going to mean that we're going to see less of those sort of do-or-die super aggressive passes that are generally made on Jack Miller in the early stages of races and leave him fuming um i think he's not going to have to take the same risk
0: and and that's a good thing for Jack Miller i guess well we're going to we're going we're gonna to learn something about about Mia, aren't we it's going to answer the question of how much of the qualifying problem has been him how much has been the suzuki and it's yeah. gonna for Rins. It's gonna answer the question: How much of the crashing in the in the middle of every race problem has been overriding a bike without enough power versus just that's what Rins does? Absolutely. So speaking of things that have amazing top speeds, Ducati. Um, so Ducati had a day on top of the times with an unlikely rider. Val, you are the world's biggest Luca Marini fan. I've decided. So uh, tell me about his, tell us about his breakthrough and. Um, and, and how scary it might be for everybody else that's harsh on presumably at
2: least luca Marini's mom who i would assume is a bigger luca Marini fan
0: uh, okay biggest unrelated fan
1: yeah but she's also she's also the world's biggest valentina rossi fan uh, conflict of interest <laughs> that's fair. so conflict yeah. of interest um i was
2: really impressed but i'm not i'm not that shocked because remember luca did put a a two year old Ducati on the front row last year. Like the on Sunday he was really, really nothing special and reliably so, but on, on Saturdays there was he was basically level with Enea Bastianini in qualifying terms and maybe even a little bit better. So equipping that guy with the GP twenty uh, one, GP twenty two now there's there's a certain logic to that I mean most people agree that that bike should have gone to Bastianini probably but it's not it's not going to be wasted in Lucas hands and definitely not on Saturdays I think what he said was that the goal now is being in Q2 every single time that looks possible on the basis of this test I mean he he wasn't the only one to try a time attack but he was the only one to top to top that particular day when when he went quickest and he was also reasonably quick on the follow-up day too. Um, so what I think is he still needs, we've, we've run we've just run a, a feature on how basically informed by the lessons of the Jorge Lorenzo ergonomics transformation that made him from a Ducati also ran to a Ducati race winner. Uh, Ducati can sort of pull off a similar trick with Marini. Just, it really needs to make him more comfortable on the bike as he was running out of juice every single time on, on Sundays last year. Also, obviously, he himself is going to be better prepared. Uh, looking at his long runs on that Mandalika, he's still fading towards the end, towards the end of runs, as far as I can tell. And honestly, my reading of lap times is absolutely shocking and terrible, and maybe isn't worth bringing up here. But from what I can see, he's he's fading more than other guys still. But even if he doesn't fix that for a little bit, he's still going to be able to do a significant amount of damage competitive damage not you know bike scrap damage he's going to be able to make a significant amount of damage at the start of races basically so he looks he looks like he's going to be a genuine factor in whatever's going on
1: so the the great thing about flyaway races is that you end up spending a lot of time in airports with people from the paddock and i've spent a lot of time in airports with people from the paddock over the last sort of 42 whatever hours i've been traveling and Actually, surprisingly, talking to other teams, they it's almost like they smell a bit of blood in the water. Um, they think that Ducati aren't in as good a shape as the rest of us think. Um, it seems like the one-lap speed that we expected Ducati to have is absolutely there, but it seems like there's still problems to fix with their race pace. Um, so it's not just Marini that's fading. It's it's Peko Bagnaya, it's Jack Miller. They're They're not as comfortable as, I think... We thought they would be given how well they ended last season and how positive they've been about the new bike. Um, The new bike has a lot of potential and some people have found that for one lap already, but it it sounds like it's still not found uh, for the race. Whether or not that's something that they can solve in the next two weeks with a ton of, you know, refining electronic strategy from all the data, like they've got more data than everyone else. They've got five identical bikes on the grid. There's there's a huge amount of number crunching to be done in the next two and a half weeks to turn up to Qatar with something that, that maybe will make a difference. But yeah, right now, I think from, from speaking to others, everyone expected Giacchetti to be in a stronger position than they are. And maybe the fact that it is Marini that was you know topping the, the the times is indicative of where the factory actually are because they weren't doing time attacks they were doing risk simulations trying to figure out their problems
2: it's it's a tough one because it's really tempting to think that the is just I wouldn't call it sandbagging but not really putting it all out there and if you wanted to think that way I think there's there's enough evidence and that's that's sort of what I lean towards as a as the likeliest explanation given what we heard from the likes of banyaya Miller and and Martin if 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 any of them are worried they're they're hiding it really really well even though the like the time attacks we've seen from banyaya weren't as good as you would expect from somebody who was dominating qualifyings at the end of last year and Martin Martin has actually looked really good but Maybe long runs he still needs a bit more, if, if I'm reading it correctly. And we've not really seen anything in terms of pace from Jack Miller. And yet all three sound reasonably reasonably content and happy with things. So I, I really would not be surprised if we show up in Qatar and suddenly all those three guys are right there at the sharp end again just because they weren't taking the risks that maybe others were in the preseason. But it's also possible that there's something something real going on there and that they still haven't honed that that engine, fixed that initial touch of throttle problem jorge martin wants more real rear grip still wants it it sounds like a significant difference from what he felt with the 2021 bike but jorge martin also already said that he thinks the 22 is already more competitive in his hands than the 2021 which it was (laughs) the 21 was really competitive in jorge martin's hands last year so that'll be that'll be a fun one to watch
0: so Aprilia had a promising first test and quite a lot to be happy about there. Uh, this weekend, the Mandalika as well. Who wants to? Who wants to be excited about Aprilia, Simon? Go for it.
1: <laughs> um, there's plenty to be excited about for Aprilia. They have confirmed that they weren't just fast in Sepang. They've they've shown, you know, there might be something to this new bike actually working. And Mandalika is kind of a track that's built for them. Um, it's fast-flowing corners where you need quite a punchy bike. You need something that's, you know, they've, they've essentially, they've built a bike that has the power of a V4, but corners like an inline four, which is kind of what Suzuki have done in reverse. The, the kind of, I think those two bikes are very different DNA wise, but they're in quite a similar place at the minute in terms of, of their characteristics. Um, and it's working really well at Mandalika, but both the riders are just absurdly happy with how good that bike is. Um, it, it it sounds like it sounds like they're going into a season knowing that they can't be championship contenders yet. Like let's let's not get carried away. But they're looking at certain tracks where they know that their Aprilia goes well, where they know that their riders are going well, and they are actually coming out and saying this year we want to win races, and and that's a big deal. Um, Qatar is one of them. If there's an Aprilia in the podium, I wouldn't be surprised in Qatar. If the guy who won the opening race of last season in Qatar can win in Qatar and in Aprilia in the form of Maverick Vinales. I wouldn't be totally shocked. And and then looking ahead, you know, they can win at Silverstone. They can win at Phillip Island. They can win at Assen. It's a calendar that suits them because after COVID, a lot of the tracks that, that fell off because of, of the pandemic are back and they're Aprilia tracks. So I, I genuinely, I'm really excited to see how that goes this year. I just, I really hope that Aleish doesn't get robbed the same way that Paul got robbed at KTM, where uh, he's done all this development work and then someone else comes along and wins their first race for them.
2: If you look at like Maverick says he still needs a few tenths to be in there fighting for victory, but if you look at his, if you look at his pace in the final day of Mandalika and you compare it to what Bagnaia was running on what looked to be fairly similar runs at maybe fairly similar times a day. I don't. There's not that much a difference, man. I mean, Maverick is not—he's not over the moon in the way he's been talking to us. But he's always been up there on basically every day of testing. And at a certain point, you can't just put that down to the extra mileage of the shakedown or whatever. We didn't have a shakedown at Mandalika. Yeah, I know. Um, I know the Aprilia is maybe a bit better out of the box than some of the other bikes. And I know that Maverick likes testing, but I'm, you know, I'm expecting something quite significant from him. And I don't know, Qatar wins that. That sounds like a lot. I would still expect that to be the, the usual, the usual gang, but at one of those, like some like Silverstone watch out seriously.
1: It's worth throwing out there. Actually, it's something we've not mentioned in this podcast that there has actually kind of been a shakedown in Mandalika in one form, because a lot of the first day is going to have been spent. On certain things like electronic strategies and gearbox ratios. The manufacturers that have factory superbike teams have come in knowing that they've they've had a head start. You know Ducati have a head start, Yamaha have a head start, Honda have a head start because their factory superbike teams have been there, done that and gathered at least some data that means that they you know, they don't need to change things like gearbox ratios, which is a big job where you lose hours stripping a bike if it's not quite right. So I think there are manufacturers that had a little bit of a leg up going into this test. And Aprilia is not among them. And
0: Aprilia is not among them, none no, no. The last uh, manufacturer we haven't chatted about yet is one that was a little bit a little bit hard to judge but didn't seem super positive at Sepang, and that and that's KTM. Are we any clearer on how good or not KTM is looking right now?
1: They're happier. Let, let's say that much. The riders there are happier. They, um, they So all the way through testing, the KTM buzzword has been potential. It's clear that the 2022 bike is not massively different from the 2021 bike, but it seems like they never really felt like they got anywhere with the 2021 bike at the end. Um, they never unlocked its potential they never made it do the things that they believe it's capable that of doing so rather than build a whole new bike for this year they've really doubled down on, on getting the best out of what they had rather than going crazy trying to reinvent the wheel which is something we've talked about before in this podcast about maybe a tendency there to try and engineer their way out of problems that should be fixed in a technical meeting um th- they're Confident enough. I spoke to Francesco Guidotti at the end of testing um, after his sort of first five days in command, and and he's really upbeat. Actually, uh, Brad Binder was also pretty confident. Miguel Oliveira was a little bit more circumspect, which is tends to be Miguel. That's his personality. But I think they're they're definitely not going into the opening round expecting the hell. That they went into the opening round with last year, whenever nothing was working at all for them. Before, before he got hurt,
2: and we'll we'll touch upon that later. But before he got hurt, Ralph Fernandez's pace looked really quite good, which is also indicative of maybe of KTM being not in in such a bad place. But the the thing is, somebody has to be in a bad place. It's just how how things work. Clearly, it's a it's a good fast bike, but. I don't know what other bike I would feel confident about saying it, it will be beating or should be beating this season regularly considering the, the step Aprilia made, considering the step Honda made with its whole contingent and yeah, I know, okay we, Yamaha the things at Yamaha, they seem a little bit downbeat, but again Fabio might be downbeat, his pace is outrageous he's still probably the quickest guy around at least over, over race, race pace and when running by himself. So it, any sort of negativity towards KTM and what, what it can achieve this season, I think would be born out of a, more than there's something wrong, it would be born out of a, somebody has to be lost. But again, I, I fully expect there to be weekends where KTM, the RC16 is just incredible and wins races with Binder Oliveira, whatever. Because that's, you know, that, that happened last year. I I think it'll be better on average, and it'll still have those weekends.
1: Yeah, like for for a bit of context, um, they were eleventh and fifteenth at the end of the three days of Mandalika testing, and both riders were half a second off P one, and and separated by like not point not six, um, whatever you've got twenty one riders separated by point eight of a second it doesn't take, you know, it's a, it's a fractionally bad day to suddenly find yourself not in the top 10. And and like you say, there always has to be a manufacturer who's in that position. And we've kind of, you know, Aprilia have been the flag bearers, but things have changed there. And, um, yeah, maybe it's, it's just KTM's turn.
0: So we, we touched on there that Fernandez had a bit of a scary incident during the weekend. Um, Simon, tell us tell us more about that, and some some of Fernandez's description of how he was feeling afterwards re- was really quite alarming, wasn't it?
1: So he had a big crash on Saturday afternoon at the end of the second day of testing that brought nearly finished his day. He turned up to his media scrum that evening with a huge bruise on his left temple, which is the worst part of your head that you want to hit is your temple. He was so in so much pain with it that he, you know, factory MotoGP riders always wear caps with their sponsors' logos. He turned up without a cap because wearing a baseball cap was too painful. He then went out on Sunday morning. He did seven laps. On lap eight, he crashed, at turn 10, which is a left-hand sort of 100-degree corner, one of the slowest corners in the circuit. And then shortly after that, they announced that he was finished for the day and he was doing a media scrum. So he came to the media scrum and he explained that he went into the corner with no perception whatsoever of speed. He thought that he'd done exactly as normal, but whenever he looked at the data, it turned out he'd forgotten to break and did it 20 meters later. Um, When someone's got visible signs of head trauma and when they start saying things like that, it's very hard ...not to think you're obviously concussed. Um, And this is a championship that at the start of this year... ...after extensive criticism last year... ...said they were tightening their concussion standards. So um, I'm not entirely sure how those two things fit together, let's say. According
2: to Fernandes, Clinica Mobile, after that second crash... ...did advise him not to go out again. And obviously, thanks for that. That's the only obvious and and rational thing to, to suggest...
1: I'm just going to cut in there a second, Val. Let's remember that it's not the clinica's job. Oh, they're the paddock GPs, right? right. They're yeah, not yeah. the Moto GP medical team. Yeah. So when it's them advising him not to go back it, out again, it shouldn't we, be advice. That's not that's their also job. The, so my, my, I get yeah. your point, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but it's not advice that has, that should be coming from the clinica. Yeah. So it's it's. I can
2: see how the symptoms that. Will have been observed by the by the medical officer may not have lined up with concussion, and I also I also can see like it's easy to say that you should err on the side of caution because ultimately it's not you who's forfeiting one of just five test days that can be very very important to your to your start of the season, but still you know we, I think we all want to err on the side of caution. If you have a bruise like that on your head, you shouldn't be riding. And I don't know how to write that into a rule book or anything like that, and I don't know how widespread of an agreement that sentiment is going to generate. But for me, it's it's pretty simple. If if your left temple's bruised like that, just just sit out a little bit, and you sh- it shouldn't be your decision. It should be somebody else telling you nah. The
1: the the thing that I keep coming back to is that he went into a slow corner from a fast straight and forgot to break but he did it on a test day when he was riding alone. If that had been the second lap of a race and he was 24th in the grid, I don't want to think about what would have happened. Um, I think the fact that we're, the mere fact that we're having the, this discussion proves to me that there is still more work to be done in this sport in terms of concussion Um. We need to be looking at things like uh, making G4 sensors mandatory inside helmets. We need to be looking at, at ways to measure this. And we have to ask the question, are they using, you know, we I, I've never been able to get a straight answer on this. Are they using baseline concussion tests like other championships do, where you perform a test at the start of the season to measure your baseline and then you perform it again anytime there's a risk that you've been concussed? Because if Fernandes was unable to process speed, it's hard to imagine that he was, you know, would have passed a, a computer test to determine that he was all OK.
0: But We should uh, we should touch on one more thing before we wrap up this podcast. So, Simon, you haven't actually been allowed to go home yet, despite the fact the test is finished. You are camping out at an airport hotel. And that's because by the time this podcast comes out, you'll be doing uh, you'll be doing something a little bit different and MotoGP related. Yeah,
1: I'm off to Madrid to watch the first two episodes of our new Amazon Prime documentary series. And it has been, so everything has been super under wraps. Um, I haven't heard any leaks on what was, uh, what's included or not until this weekend. And it, (laughs) in, in what is worrying news for certain people in the paddock and absolutely fantastic news for the rest of us. I've uh, I've got a list of people I have to text after I watch the first two episodes and tell them how much trouble they're in based on how much of what they actually said in front of cameras has made it into the documentary. And um, everyone in the paddock has sort of said, oh, yeah, after sort of one race, we forgot the cameras were there and they just blended into the background and we carried on as usual. And we had our arguments and our screaming matches and our fights and we said things we shouldn't have said and it seems like it's all made it into the documentary and that should make for absolutely fantastic viewing uh because at the end of the day the the thing that makes moto gp is that we have these amazing human characters and i I really hope that they we get a chance to see them because i don't think anyone is going to think any less of anyone as a result of this and um it should encourage a few more people into the sport and it should uh entertain the rest of us
2: what more perfect antidote is there for the insanely sanitized world of corporate team launches than in a documentary that actually shows how those people speak to each other what they think of each other and what you know how how they behave in the heat of the moment uh i don't know i can if i was a writer i'd hate it because yeah but there's like there, there's almost no point to do it if you can't provide that, and this exactly. is this is sort of me taking another as usual indirect jab at you know, Drive to Survive, the Formula One standard bearer that doesn't tell you anything you didn't already know, <laughs> apart from things that aren't true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, but the idea is great, and if, if MotoGP is bold enough. To, to make it what it needs to be, then uh, everyone involved, even those who are going to be in some hot water, especially those who are going to be in some hot water because of what they said, they all, they all deserve our, our massive respect, first and foremost.
1: And at the end of the day, I think it's the people who are most likely to be in hot water who have the potential to really make something out of this, because people like personalities and the breakout stars from this documentary will be the guys that that are fiery and explosive and passionate because who doesn't love a bit of passion in your sporting personalities especially in this like you say Val corporate whitewashed bland social media era of sport let's let's have people in teams screaming at each other and then making up two hours later whenever they win a race you know it happens so let's see it happen I'm game
0: and I, I imagine MotoGP has seen what drive to survive, drive to survive did for F one, so hopes in the paddock must be apart from people who are terrified of how they're going to come across. Hopes for what it can do for the series must be pretty high.
1: Yeah, B- people are are people are not apprehensive. I don't think that's the right word. They're they're. I think there's almost a a trend not to get under uh, expectations too high because Drive to Survive has been such an incredible success that everyone's trying very hard to, oh, yeah, well, you know, we don't want to go, you know, just expect it to turn MotoGP into a massive overnight success. But um, there is obviously it's being done to replicate that success. And all the ingredients are there for that to happen. So here's hoping.
2: Yeah, it's almost obviously there is a a slight fear in me that it's going to be like really, really good and just not get the audience reach that it deserves because that yeah, it just happens to good things sometimes. Having seen what Dorna puts out post-races in terms of the, you know, the unscripted, non-interview, like, basically writers chatting to each other and discussing stuff, and they subtitle it all, and it's clearly the guys don't really pay much attention to the cameras being there, and it's reliably excellent. Uh, like, a full series of 45-minute episodes of that, just it sounds like the the best imaginable thing. It also sounds fairly hardcore, so let's hope they balance that with the... With the accessibility that needs to be there but i just i i really hope that you know even if it is fairly hardcore i really hope that the the audience that it's targeted i hope it forgives that because i'd rather go hardcore and honest than uh than dumbed down basically
0: absolutely that's your mantra for life val and that's why probably why you got this neck injury in fairness
2: now, dumbed down is my for life. I don't, I don't
0: know. <laughs> I, I imagine Simon. You you probably don't know yet how much you're going to be allowed to talk about this when you come back from uh, from the premiere. I I'm not sure yet.
1: I'm not sure yet. Um, we'll see. We I know we have a press conference tomorrow, and then uh, we get to see two episodes tomorrow night. But there's been no talk of sort of embargo or anything like that yet. So. We'll see what we're told. Will
2: you be allowed to leave the theater before
1: it, it premieres? Or I've I've already got people asking, can I set my phone up on like a Facebook live stream so that <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> that might be. Oh, that's upon. very. You see that in Russian <laughs> cinemas
2: all the time. Just, yeah. just bring a
1: phone tripod set up and just <laughs> yeah, go 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 big or go home, right?
0: <laughs> well your your mission, Simon, if if there are embargoes and there are things you're not allowed to say, your mission is to give as many cryptic hints in next week's podcast as you possibly can without <laughs> naming like any plan, names, right? just like man, a few descriptions.
2: Man, Cabio Fartararo sure comes <laughs> off bad in this. <laughs>
0: So let's look forward to that next week and we're going to get a couple more of these episodes in before the start of the season I'm sure uh, although Simon is allowed to go and have a bit of a rest now uh, once he's got this film premiere or this documentary premiere out of the way Val isn't allowed to have a rest because we've got F1 launches to write about as well and he's part of our team for that so sorry Val, you'll be dragging your neck injury through a lot of hard work for the next couple of weeks Um, Speaking of F1, there's an F1 launch virtually every day at the moment. So if you're into the four-wheeled side of things, there are podcasts all over the place. We're still in the middle of Bring Back V10s, our retro F1 podcast. Formula E had uh, an intriguing Mexico weekend, so there's a podcast coming out probably about the same time as this one uh, about that as well. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you back here for more pre-season MotoGP chat in roughly a week's time.